welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, you know what just happened? <laughs> uh, it's a very, uh, very open-ended question, so I'm just going to let intros, you uh, don't I? tell me what happened. All right, so let's see. Uh, a couple weeks ago, it not only was the end of the first quarter, uh, it was the end of March, it was also the end of the fiscal year for a lot of big Asia investors, specifically Japanese banks. I know that is the highlight of your calendar every year. Did you celebrate? I like Do people out there do a uh, fiscal New Year's <laughs> celebration? I mean, I know... There's a lot of finance out there in Hong Kong. And so is that a thing out there or is that just it's not the same? Uh, I I confess that I didn't notice anyone um, celebrating more than usual. I did write a haiku on Twitter, though. Oh, uh, uh, and my haiku, my haiku was about stress in the money markets, which is something that occasionally happens at quarter ends. That, I, that's been a thing lately. And people sort of in the final few days or the final week or a couple of weeks of the quarter, you start to hear people rumbling about, oh, are we going to see um, see stress appearing in various money market and fixed income markets? And I've, I, I feel like I don't have my head completely wrapped around why this keeps happening. Ah, well, then I know just the person who's going to be able to help you with this. But yes, essentially, uh, let's see, at Right before the year end, right before December 31st last year, we did see a bunch of people talking about funding stress in the money market, which is just about the biggest money market that you can think of. And then just at the end of the first quarter, we saw that yet again. So something is clearly happening in the market. At the same time, a big component of the money market, uh, something that is often used as collateral for the money market, U.S. Treasuries are also undergoing massive, massive changes, some of which you might have picked up on in the U.S. Once again, I feel like this is an area in which I'm extremely weak on, like a lot of the sort of the deep plumbing of the financial system. I wish I knew more about and I'm uh, I'm optimistic that maybe I'll learn more after today's episode. Joe, I know you know this. So you know the U.S. Treasury is selling basically a record yes. amount of Okay, this of debt, I know. Right? Yes, and yes, I'm aware of this part. Thank you. Yes, I am okay. aware. Okay. Oh, phew. Okay, so at the same time that the U.S. Treasury is selling a lot of debt, we have uh, a bunch of changes sort of taking place in the underlying money market, and we're going to discuss all of those with someone who is really the foremost expert on this topic. Uh, So I'm very pleased that our guest for this particular episode is Zoltan Pozar. He's a strategist over at Credit Suisse. He's also a former U.S. Treasury advisor. So who better to talk about the massive changes underway, not only in money markets, but also in the U.S. Treasury market? Zoltan, it's so good to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. So I sort of alluded to this uh, in, in the intro, but we're going to be talking about money markets. And, and just to back up, uh, for Joe's benefit, obviously, can you tell us what is your concept of money markets? What are we talking about when we say the money market? Thank you. I'm glad you asked this and didn't skip over this question because uh, I would have it's already... It's all for you, Joe. Been, yes. Money markets. I think in my interpretation, I think anything from overnight and intraday stuff out to, I would say, three months. And so that's the core of it. And 
you know, money markets are hierarchical and that uh, that shows up in, you know, the term aspect of it, the institutional aspect of it, the instrumental aspect of it. But I think the core of it is definitely all the flows that happen in the financial system three months and in. So very short term funding. Yep. Got it. And the people who are buying and selling this short term funding, they're basically rolling over it constantly right in in the overnight market usually or through the repo market where they sort of use the underlying securities as collateral to secure extra financing yeah so so there is there is various types of players um maybe we can start from outside in so you have you know i guess the the every time you think about a carry trader whoever is buying a bond and financing it short in the short-term money markets or you know Perry Merling would say that they do money market funding of capital market lending, another way of saying shadow banking, carry trading, all that stuff. Uh, that typically gets funded at the three-month point, simply because most bonds pay coupons every quarter, and so it's convenient. Mm. I guess it's just an industry convention. So if you are someone who is not a dealer and who's not a bank, you will tend to fund at the three-month point. And there are obviously on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, players that fund overnight. Those would be banks and dealers that have uh, a deeper ability to roll this financing uh, every day. And then the arbitrageurs, I would say, in the money market live between the overnight point and the three-month point. Because some of these arbitrage trades are about you know, borrowing money for one month and lending it at the three-month point and rolling it every three months. Uh, every, I'm sorry, every month, or if you want to do shorter ARB, you can do one week to one month and one day to one week. And so, you know, the, the three month and the overnight points are the extremes and, and the large GSIBs or whatever you want to call them these days, they are the ones that move the money between the overnight point and the three month point. But all these end, in that end users of funding tend to live at the three month point. So all these different players are engaged in different uh, transactions, but essentially they're borrowing at very short-term rates for some sort of further trade, whether it's uh, lending or buying some bond out there that has a higher yield. How big, and hoping to profit from the spread, uh, how big is the money market? I mean, it's huge. It's uh, I never counted it. It's probably north of $5 trillion. I mean, if you just look at the the large groups of investors that borrow in it. I mean, the, the, the most obvious invest, uh, uh, example is uh, governments, the U.S. Treasury. They have, um, you know, trillions of bills outstanding. Uh, you have the large banks, all of which now have to fund their so-called HQLA portfolios around the three-month point. So that's, that's another trillion. You have the federal home loan banks in the U.S., which issue easily a trillion dollars. Um, the repo market, we have daily statistics on it. It's at least a trillion dollars uh, only at the overnight point. I mean, most of the repo market is overnight anyway. So I think that's that's already around five trillion. And then the thing that's unmeasured, but is very important and very huge is the FX swap market, which is, mm. you know, people think of it as a derivative and whatnot. But I mean, at the core of it, it's it's really a funding market. One thing we know is that in Tokyo alone, the dollar-yen FX swap market um, is roughly $1.5 trillion in size. Mm. Or that's what it used to be at least um, 
through the end of 2018. The Bank of Japan, uh, they have a wonderful financial stability report. Um, and there's a, a chart they used to publish there where they broke down uh, life insurers um, and large mega banks demand for dollars in the FX swap market. Uh, and recently they stopped publishing it, but up to the point where they published it, those numbers were north of a trillion dollars. And, you know, the FX swap market is big, not only in Tokyo, but also in Europe and in, uh, in you know, satellite Europe, as I call it, uh, you know, Switzerland, Scandinavia, all these other places. So I think the money market is easily north of five trillion, probably even seven trillion dollars. All right. So it's it's a big market, mm-hmm. to say the least. Uh, there are going to be a lot of superlatives used in this particular chat. But Zoltan, I'm glad you mentioned the FX swap market. So this is basically the place where big investors hedge or convert their currencies. So, you know, if you're buying U.S. dollar debt and you're a Japanese investor, you probably don't want to be exposed to that currency risk. So you might do a swap um, in the market to sort of offset that cost. Now, you argue that a lot of the flows that we've seen in money markets recently have been changing partly because of what's going on in the FX swap market. Can you explain that? There's obviously always two sides of uh, of the same coin, right? So on the one hand, if you are a foreign investor, like a Japanese investor, who buys dollar assets, uh, it's not only that you don't want to have that dollar FX exposure, it's not in your mandate hmm. to run with that risk, right? So uh, by mandate, you basically have to manage the FX risk of that position and eliminate it. And that's what you use the FX swap market for. And it's been uh, it's been the case that for many years the primary destination for all these, and again let, let's just you know broaden this out. So this is not just about the Japanese life insurers. This is about Swiss life insurers, Swedish life insurers, Northern European uh, long only pension funds, and, and and insurers. Whoever is basically trying to escape a negative rate jurisdiction at home um, has been playing a game where they have been looking for. Uh, decently yielding assets, primarily in the U.S., uh, and then buying those assets and hedging it back to the local currency. And for as long as the curve, treasury curve, was steep in the U.S., that was an easy trade, right? Because if you could buy the 10-year treasury at 2.5% and pay um, 1% to hedge the FX component of that uh, of that bond, you would still end up with 1.5%, which compared to negative rates in the, in the home country are great. Um, and, you know, if you go back to 2015, that's been, that's been the case. There were a couple of uh, structural things that happened. I mean, number one, Basel III was obviously introduced and that raised balance sheet costs for all the intermediaries that were providing these FX hedges to, to the life insurers the world over. And then we had a couple of episodes of financial reform, like money fund reform, like tax reform, which uh, messed around with the spread that um, uh, these foreign investors had to pay over OIS, uh, which is basically the Fed's preferred path for short-term rates. Um, and, and you know, sometimes these spreads periodically flared up and they raised... Uh, hedging costs, but then hedging costs uh, uh, came back down after um, you know these episodic storms have subsided. But the very important thing that has happened from um, 
2017 onwards is that the Fed really started to hike interest rates. And as the Fed started to hike interest rates, they flattened the curve completely. So basically, uh, relative to three-month bills, uh, the 10-year Treasury barely yielded a lot more. And then when you add up these post-Basel III spreads on top of very elevated front-end rates, you basically ended up in a situation that where if you're a foreign investor, you just cannot buy treasuries on a hedged basis and make a positive spread. Mm. Okay? And, you know, this has also been a theme uh, that's been going on for a while. And uh, because treasuries were no longer attractive given hedging costs, another important theme in the U.S. has been that all of the foreign flow has been going into the credit markets, anything from IG to high yield to CLOs. So obviously that, uh, that helped uh, strong conditions in those markets. And, you know, those assets trade at a uh, reasonably, you know, widespread to treasuries. And those widespreads were basically what offset the rising hedging costs. Do these uh, foreign institutional investors, um, and you mentioned earlier that uh, currency risk was not part of their mandate. How does the credit risk of uh, buying corporates fit into their mandate? Yeah, credit risk is fine. That's no problem for them. Right, because you know the, the thing about FX swap market, FX markets, is that you know currencies can can go up and down, you know, five percent right. fairly easily. I think in in the credit world, if you don't have anything systemic or anything sector specific, and it, for as long as you're diversified, I mean, it's very hard to get um, markdowns that big. Yeah? So. We've we Tracy started this, or in the intro, we talked about all of this, the weird stuff we keep seeing at the end of each quarter in these markets. And I'm, what is that all about? So what what's changed such that the final several days of each quarter become this period where suddenly stress start, starts to emerge? I think, in simple terms, um, we now have a regulatory regime which banks are following chapter and verse. And this regulatory regime has changed the economics of a bank's balance sheet. I mean, there's certain days when you have to report mm. uh, your leverage ratio, which used to be, you know, the focus used to be on risk-weighted assets. Now, this is just a simple leverage ratio where the notional size of your balance sheet cannot be bigger than X. You have liquidity ratios, term funding ratios, you have intraday liquidity requirements, um, so-called GSIP scores, which means you know the bigger and the more complex you are, the more surcharge you have to carry as capital in future periods. And you know the, the, the system takes these reporting dates extremely seriously. Um, and every time these reporting rates come uh, come by, you know, quarter ends, year ends, year ends particular, um, banks just shrink their balance sheets because they have to meet certain targets. And when these balance sheets shrink, the market disappears, right? Because a lot of these markets that we are talking about, repo and FX swaps, are basically intermediated through banks' balance sheets. Um, I think academics have this tendency to think about markets as some, you know, magical cloud on a chart right. that always clears. I mean, there's nothing magical about them. It's basically people putting balance sheet on the line. And if they take that balance sheet away, you have a vacuum. And when you have a vacuum, rates pop.
So um, I want to go back for a second to what we were discussing about how it's becoming more difficult for foreign investors to buy U.S. treasuries, mm-hmm. uh, this basic idea that, you know, they used to be able to buy them and then hedge them and still make one and a half percent on something like the 10 year. And now that's not possible, partly because the Fed has raised rates, but also partly because of what's been going on in the FX swap market. How has that changed the body of buyers for U.S. treasuries? How has that been different in recent months or years? And also, why should we care about a different group buying up U.S. treasuries as opposed to an old group like Japanese banks. So I'll tell you the punchline first. You should care about this because I think all of these impact the Fed's ability to taper and shrink the balance sheet tremendously. And and I think that uh, that concept is is ill understood. So let's let's start with uh, with the past, and though we'll come to the present. So it's been the case that foreign investors used to be very you know avid buyers of treasuries at auction. And again, for as long as the economics of it were there, you you could buy treasuries and hedge it back for a positive carry, you did it. Um, What changed over the course of last year, and and particularly during the fourth quarter of last year, uh, the foreign buyers, uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, the the bread and butter hedged buyers, uh, they disappeared because what happened in the fourth quarter of last year, actually coming into the fourth quarter, is that the yield curve... um, outright inverted relative to foreign investors hedging costs okay so i guess one important observation is that people tend to obsess over the inversion right um then they Mm -hmm. tend to obsess about it in a way where they measure it using three stands and actually like looking at the curve shape using the three-month bill yield versus the 10-year yield actually is not very meaningful these days because the reason why we did that metric 10 years ago and why uh, that metric had meaning to it was because everybody used to fund around the three-month bill yield. And everybody used to fund around the three-month bill yield because we didn't have Basel III. Bank balance sheets were in unlimited supply. So basically, banks were arbitraging funding spreads all the way until they roughly equaled three-month bill yields. And that's obviously not the case anymore. So looking at curve slopes using three stands uh, makes no sense uh, under Basel III. What you need to do is actually you need to look at actual funding costs relative to the 10-year point, and that those relative funding costs are term repo, three-month LIBOR, three-month hedging costs. And all of these rates are going to be, you can translate as, you know, three-month bills plus 20, three-month bills plus 40, three-month bills plus 80. Okay, and so those are your actual funding costs. And when you look at um, the the level of these actual funding rates relative to the ten year, relative to all of them, the curve has inverted last October, the first week of October. Um, and the reason for that was obviously you had the year end turn was getting priced into the FX swap markets, um, so you had a big pop in uh, in hedging costs. LIBOR was going through its typical year and uh, widening which has been a mainstay of, uh, of, of the post-Basel III regime. And, uh, you know, collateral supply and treasury issuance was heavy, and that was pressuring uh, uh, GC rates. And so, you know, interestingly, you know, even though the outright inversion only happened one or two weeks ago, 
relative to the rates that matter, we've been living in an inverted curve environment since last October, which I kind of find important to highlight because sometimes you can still read Fed speeches that say, well, I'm not worried about the inversion just yet because it only lasted two weeks and I want to see it deeper than what we can actually see in three stands. Well, actually, it didn't happen only two weeks ago, but since last October, and depending on what funding rates you look at, it's been as deep as 30 or 40 basis points. So, so these, things, uh, these things are changing as we speak. So we are living through this inversion. And importantly, uh, you know, to get back to your question, Tracy, when this inversion happens, you basically knock away a few buyers, potential buyers of treasuries. So if the foreign hedged buyer cannot buy this, uh, buy treasuries at auctions, then uh, that's one buyer base that goes away. If you're a bank and you cannot fund at the three-month point uh, in the CD and CP markets and buy treasuries at a positive carry, you knock that buyer base away. So you just basically start to eliminate all the buyers that um, have been coming to, to the treasury market. But then there's a very special buyer base, which is the dealers who by law have to buy if nobody else buys. Um, and that's what you do as a primary dealer. That's why auctions don't fail in the US at least. And if nobody else buys, but the dealers have to, you know, the dealers don't have the money. The dealers are funded entities. And if you end up in a situation where you have to take down a large chunk of treasuries uh, unexpectedly because the auctions go bad, then you basically need a lot of repo funding to take those treasuries down and finance them. And that's precisely what happened during the fourth quarter of last year. You had this shock where, you know, hedging costs and all these other funding rates got to uneconomic levels. The dealers had no choice but to take down the treasuries. They had no choice but to fund it in the repo market. And basically the way that transpired was they leaned extremely heavily to a handful of large banks and into those large banks' HQLA portfolio, and they completely stressed out the repo market because of that. So I guess before we get further into the details, I guess, you know, what I just told you about how this impacts the Fed's ability to taper. Yeah. The, the, the important thing here to appreciate is that once you get into overnight markets where these dealers tend to fund their inventories, if you lean very heavily onto the, onto the overnight repo market and you stress out rates there, the, basically the way that manifests itself is that repo rates are going to trade outside the Fed's target range for the overnight funds rate. Uh, and, you know, as they like to call it, the constellation of short-term interest rates. And, you know, as a central bank, uh, the Fed cares deeply about where overnight rates print relative to the band because that's one of the most important mandates you have as a central bank to make sure that uh, that overnight rates print, uh, print within the target. And once you have difficulty in controlling that, then you, you know, open up a whole new can of worms and that's what basically forces you to rethink how much you can actually taper because whether repo rates print within the band or outside the band ultimately come down to how many reserves there are in the system. Yeah, no, this uh, this is the part I think uh, I could use and maybe some listeners could use uh, a lot of clarification about because obviously the fact that the Fed is going to halt its wind down of the balance sheet this year is a very... A lot of people talking about it without much understanding, and people are like, oh, they're they they're stopping. They think that maybe there's some 
I mean, it feels like the debate is like, oh, is this some economic thing or is this some technical thing? And it feels like a lot of people think it's some economic thing where something is telling the Fed, oh, you can't keep winding it down. And the Fed is trying to say, no, this is just sort of a we want it to be boring. This is more of just about the sort of technical stuff. So explain this further. What is going on in the market that requires them to, uh, you know, the demand for Fed for reserves that they can't go below a certain level? Okay, so I know that question wasn't particularly articulate. It, uh, no, 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 it it was, uh, but I think it was a broad question, right? So I said, you know, how do you go from stresses in the repo market to ending taper? So I think it was a little bit more complicated than that. There were macro reasons for it, and sure. then there were technical reasons for it. I think the macro is that you know the period we are talking about, the end of last year, yeah. coincided with a global IP cycle slowdown. You know, our, our economic team is quite prolific about, you know, tracking all that stuff. And and so, uh, just, you know, give you a nutshell version of this, you know, IP cycles are regular and the central bank tends to overreact to them. Markets tend to be driven by them. Uh, so every time you have these episodes where the IP cycle is troughing and things get dark, you know, people lose confidence about, you know, the longevity of the cycle and uh, and whatnot. So so that was one uh, one part of it. The the other more technical part of it would be that you know the fact that we had this sell off in risk assets during the fourth quarter. Okay, um, some of it again has to do with the IP cycle, but some of it also has to do with the fact that if you think about a dealer's balance sheet and given how scarce balance sheets are uh, post Basel three. If you are a dealer that, by law, has to now absorb $200 billion of treasuries during the fourth quarter because there is nobody else who's buying it, you have to make room on your balance sheet to absorb all that paper. Okay, So uh, if your balance sheet is limited and you have no choice but to buy this stuff, you have to make room by selling other stuff. And when you look at dealer inventories by component during the fourth quarter, as they were absorbing this $200 billion worth of treasuries, they were trimming their inventories in virtually all other asset classes. So whether you look at uh, IG or high yield or uh, you know any, any imaginable form of risk assets, equities, if you think about the amount of balance sheet that you want to deploy to, I don't know, equity futures and funding you know, hedge funds, long positions in, in the equity market, you have to trim all that stuff. When you trim it, it doesn't do anything good to equity valuations or credit spreads, right? So, you know, George Soros would say that things are reflexive. So, sure, you have a, an IP cycle making f- people feel bad about the world, and then you actually have these technical adjustments that have to go through dealer balance sheets, which is probably informed by the IP cycle, but it's also making the IP cycle's perception worse because, you know, risk assets are doing ugly things. So... You know, these things are, are they, were, they were basically happening all at the same time. Um, to get into the super technical aspects of this, uh, why do reserves and balance sheet taper matter? Well, they, they matter because, you know, post Basel III, I think an important feature of the system is that every possible trade uh, or flow, interbank or dealer to bank or non-bank to bank, uh, settles through the movement of reserves. Okay, so that's point number one. Point number two, it used to be the case that before 
Basel III, non-banks leaned heavily on clearing banks for intraday credit. And then the clearing banks and the large banks leaned on the Fed for intraday credit. Uh, and that intraday credit provision doesn't really happen anymore, simply because uh, there is stigma associated with tapping the Fed for credit even on an intraday basis. And the price of intraday credit provision uh, between non-banks and, and clearing banks has uh, gotten a lot more expensive. So basically, the system is trying to get trades and flows done with the amount of reserves that are in the system. Taper, for all intents and purposes, is uh, impacting that quantity of reserves, right? Because every time right. uh, bonds come into the system and the Fed takes cash out, you just reduce the amount of reserves in the system. So the, so the grease, if you will, that settles all the flows is getting you know scarcer and scarcer. And... You know, days like December 31st, when repo rates uh, popped uh, 400 basis points outside the target band, happened precisely because when it comes to clearing some of these trades, uh, there is just not enough tokens in the system to get this stuff done. And, you know, December 31st and the fourth quarter of last year was a particularly bad kind of quarter end because not only was it a year end, but also you had this outright inversion that the system had to deal with and the dealers had to fund uh, the inventories they got backed up with. Uh, December 31st was also a settlement day. So everything that could possibly go wrong went bad. But, you know, funding a bank and, and financial markets are not a science. I mean, bad days happen. And the important thing that we've learned on December 31st is that really there's one or two large banks that have the amount of reserves ready to help the repo markets clear. And when those one or two banks reach the amount of, reach the, the limit of how much reserves they can lend into the market, uh, bad things happen. And I think it's just not good policy and not good for financial stability when you have one or two private institutions like that and you have no formal backstop um, provided by the Fed, for example, that would... Uh, you know, preclude the system from having to, to deal with days like that again. So here's something I always wonder. Do you think that in the course of creating, you know, post-financial crisis regulation, like new Basel requirements, like the high-quality um, liquid assets rule, HQLA, this, this notion that banks had to hold a bunch of, you know, liquid and top-rated stuff... And in the course of formulating unconventional monetary policy, do you think the Fed ever thought what it would look like if those two things sort of collided together? Do you think they were thinking that much about the interplay between the new regulations and what was happening to their balance sheet? I'm sure they were thinking about it. I think no one really knew what this what this tipping point was, you know. So everybody knew that Basel III was out there. Everybody knew that banks have to hold HQLA. What does that stand for again? A high-quality high quality. liquid asset, so reserves right. and treasuries. I think where, um, where people got a bit fuzzy was that, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the conventional wisdom was that, okay, well, there is HQLA and there's level 1 HQLA and level 2 HQLA, so when we taper... All we're really doing is we are taking away one type of level one HQLA, which is reserves, and we are replacing it with another, which is treasuries, which is fine. But from a, and this is actually very interesting, right? Because 
all these LCRs, uh, the, the liquidity coverage ratios that require the banks to hold the liquid assets, are based on end-of-day balance sheet snapshots. Okay, so that means that if your liabilities are this and X amount of these um, mature within 30 days, you need to hold um, level 1 HQLA against them to, uh, to back them up and to comply with your uh, liquidity coverage ratio. But, um, you know, end-of-day liquidity snapshots that require you to hold liquid assets that will cover your outflows over the next 30 days, none of that requires that your asset has to be able to provide intraday liquidity. Okay, and, and this is where this is where things get complicated because reserves are basically money for banks that banks keep at the Fed. And every time flows happen between banks during the day, literally uh, reserves go from one bank's account at the Fed to another bank's account at the Fed a million times a day. And the only instrument that you can take that that you can use to take care of these intra reserve account flows are reserves. You know, treasuries you can sell today, but you only get liquidity tomorrow. And if you lend in the repo market today, you will only get your money back the next day, right? So, so I think where things got complicated and where things, um, where the market and and I guess um, the central bank wasn't thinking too clearly about is that these intraday flows matter. And for some of these uh, flows, you can only use reserves. And when you cut too deep into the reserve needs of the system for intraday purposes, you have you have hiccups like December 31st. I mean, December 31st is a day where intraday liquidity needs are especially high. But again, you know, bad days can happen anytime. And, and, and the December 31st episode just tells us that, you know, we are quite close. We are basically 200 billion away from from having these um, bad days potentially be more regular. So in theory, reserves and treasuries uh, should, they should be essentially the same quality asset um, on a bank's balance sheet, but because of their different daily liquidity or intraday liquidity characteristics, they don't exactly serve the same purpose. So what is there something that should be done from a regulatory basis to avoid days like you know, December 31st or other periods in which it's essentially the stress imposed by the regulations yeah. itself that caused the tension? Well, I think it's a, it's a philosophical question. I think, uh, I think the superstructure of, of the regulatory framework is correct. I think um, you know, the rules are clear. Banks are living with those rules. I would say that what's needed is not a tinkering with the architecture of Basel III uh, or the interpretation of it. But what's needed is, is, a, is a simple plumbing fix where if you have some days where reserves get scarce for whatever reason, you should have an entity in the system that is going to put those reserves into the system on a temporary basis to control prices staying within the target band. Um, so I think that's the that's the path of least resistance, and that's that's where the sh- that's where the solution should be coming from. So basically, I think you know it's it's either providing more balance sheet elasticity for th- the private system through right. tinkering with regulations, or uh, having a central bank that's willing to provide that balance sheet elasticity because they can and because that's their job and role, basically. So, and I think the path of least resistance 
politically and technically and, and from all sorts of angles is is the central bank doing what a central bank ought to do. All right, uh, Zoltan, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Zoltan Pozar from Credit Suisse, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Joe, I really enjoyed that conversation, if only because it really puts the yield curve inversion from the past few weeks in perspective. Like everyone is going nuts because the yield curve has inverted and Zoltan comes on and he's like, no, 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 it's been inverted since October. Yeah, I really like that conversation. Actually, it was exactly what I needed. I just think that, you know, as I said in my intro, I really didn't know very much about this topic. And I think my sort of incoherent questions sort of prove that. But it was exactly the sort of very clear conversation that I needed. And now I'm going to like read a bunch more notes and actually have some sort of understanding of what this is all about. Yeah, I think it's a really good reminder that often the way a lot of people talk about the market isn't necessarily reflective of the way that market actually functions. And I mean, there's a reason we do it, because if we started talking about demand for U.S. treasuries in FX hedge terms and things like that, I think, you know, we would never get a full sentence out. But it's actually really, really important to consider things like currency hedging costs when we're talking about demand for U.S. treasuries. And so rarely do we hear The other thing I think that we do, or maybe I'm just projecting and I do, is we sort of abstract away Um, various technical factors that could be impacting the market. So even something like that last point, where in my mind, I tend to think of reserves held at the Fed and treasuries as being equal quality assets. The fact that under the current regulatory system, because of their different uh, liquidity characteristics, they are different. And there are times when they are not substitutes for one another, that that is going to have an impact on things that show up in the market. So in other words, all these things like uh, you know the Basel requirements, like the size of the balance sheet, like they're real and we can't just sort of um, abstract them away and uh, sort of think that they don't really matter. Yeah, absolutely. But if anything, you know, the next time you hear that primary dealer inventories of U.S. Treasuries are at an all-time high, uh, you shouldn't necessarily see that as the sort of end of the world, but as a function of some of the big changes in money marks markets that we have been discussing. Should we leave it there, we'll Leave Jeff? it there. And, I, you know, like, I still have a lot to learn, but uh, I do feel after this conversation, maybe I'm getting a little bit more understanding. We'll have Zoltan on again. He'll talk more. In the meantime, this has been another edition of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our producer on Twitter. He's Topher Forhez. His handle is at ForhezT. As well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>